I'm Rebecca, and we are Mama Bear Apologetics. We're just two gals talking about life's big questions from a biblical worldview. Because when it comes to the battle of ideas, we need to be able to say, mess with my kids and I will demolish your arguments. You mess, I demolish. Got it? Capiche? (laughs) (laughs) Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Catherine. And today we are going to be talking about a topic that I'm pretty sure that most moms out there have heard come from their child. And there's a lot of adults who've even asked this before. And that's the question, who made God? <laughs> um, Rebecca, have you, Catherine, have y'all gotten this one before? Yes. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. Even. I've had some very high level PhD scientists ask this question, like Richard Dawkins. And I've had my four-year-old <laughs> ask it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, it runs the gamut. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't, I don't think this is a question that really goes away, and it's kind of one of those ones where there's some questions where you have to be a little bit more intelligent or, like, uh, mature to even ask the question. This is one of those questions that, like, a three-year-old can, can kind of formulate. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we're going to answer that, um, basically understanding where the question's coming from, because we this is one of those ones where you we need to not just answer the question, we actually need to go back a step of where the question's coming from. I think a lot of times people just answer the question, and I think that does our kids a disservice. But go back to where the question's coming from, and then we're gonna talk a little bit more in depth. We're gonna give like kind of a simple answer, kind of a medium depth answer, and then a really in-depth answer. <laughs> um, so the first one, just understanding where the question comes from. So when you hear who made God, what question do y'all think is kind of coming before that question? Well, it usually comes with how did the universe come to be here? And yeah. so you tend to answer, well, God made it. And then the mm-hmm. natural outflow of that, well, then who made God? Exactly. But sometimes the problem with that is that the who made God comes like, Completely, I mean, it's like sometimes you're lucky enough that it comes in succession. Sometimes you have a kid that's been thinking about this for a while and they just kind of say, Who made God out of the blue? And <laughs> um, you don't have that kind of successive questioning leading up to it. They've just been mulling it over in their minds for quite a while. So, the technical answer to this is that God is a pre existent, eternal being who's capable of creating everything from nothing. So, but even though that is the technical answer and it's an absolutely true answer, it can feel very unsatisfying uh, to a lot of people. So what are some of the problems that y'all have seen come up with with that answer? Well, I can say that um, I think people have a hard time relating to that because we don't have anything in our immediate environment that's like that. (laughs) Because by definition, (laughs) that is God. And and, uh, behind the assumption of who made, I mean, the question of who made God is also the assumption that God is like us. And Mm. you can say, well, he's at least like us, but he's much greater than us and different than us. I mean, we are not eternal, self-existent. Um, omniscient, omnipotent. So you have to give them, people have to have a whole new kind of category of being that um, we just don't have in our daily experience. Yeah. And I think that sometimes um, this is also why analogies for the Trinity fall flat, because it's like, how how do you make comparisons? It's like, we try it, we understand Mm -hmm. 
the unknown through what we know. So how do we understand something that's completely unique, that there's nothing else in creation like it? It's really mm-hmm. hard for us to understand that. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think it also speaks to the fact that we all inherently understand that things require a cause. Yes. Uh, you know, so I think that's really at the heart of what's driving that question, whether they have walked through the whole progression in their mind. Like what I've seen a lot of times is, okay, so what made the universe? And you go through this explanation, well, God made the universe. And they say, well, who made God? Even if the question comes out of a seemingly random conversation, you know, your child just burst out with it at the dinner table. <laughs> it's because they have been thinking that things have a cause because that's mm-hmm. what we see is the distinct pattern of this nature around us is that everything has a, uh, every effect has a cause. And if this universe is an effect, there must be some sort of cause. And mm-hmm. while a child might not think of it in those kinds of mature terms, um, it shows that there is that understanding that something has to explain this existence around us. And then mm-hmm. it does, like Rebecca was saying, kind of blow out that typical box that we think in of what a cause is supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is a very different cause than anything else that we would that we would observe in nature. The universe doesn't explain itself. I think it's really interesting how you bring up the intuitive nature of knowing that things have a cause. Because I think about even when I was growing up and my mom, you know, something would happen or you know, my mom say, how did this get here? Or, you know, how did the lamp break or, you know, what <laughs> happened here? And of course, you know, if you and your siblings just kind of shrug your shoulders, she'll say sarcastically, oh, so I suppose it just put itself there all by itself or it broke itself all by itself or you know, it's this thing where we, we intuitively know that things don't happen all by themselves. We know that there has to be a cause. Right. And um, it's like you don't even need to explain it. And so that's why I don't think kids even really understand. Like you said, it's more of a mature concept. So um, like I said, that answer can sound like a cop out. And indeed, there's a lot of atheists who will scoff at this answer. And they'll say, oh, that's just a God of the gaps. That's just, you know. Uh, an argument from ignorance and so like our kids even though it might seem like they accept the answer at that time they might get to the point where they start having other people question saying oh well you know like like what I just said God of the gaps ignorance and stuff like that and it sounds like a cop-out until you start examining all the other options that you have available and so if when I I've had my uh, my nephew ask me this question before, so I always take it back to a um, asking him what he's really asking, which what he's really asking is what what made the universe. That's where the question came from. So I go back to that question. Then I say, well, let's see how other people would answer how the universe got here. And the thing that we have to realize, and this is kind of like if we were going to have a thesis statement for this podcast, this would be it. It is that every other world worldview believes um, that blank is eternally self-existent and capable of creating. And that blank, everybody fills in with something different. And all of those different things all require faith. And so this is kind of like the talk that I did with the third and third through fifth graders at church a couple weeks ago where we were talking about myths. And one of the myths is that religion requires faith and science has facts. Because when we get down to the scientific, quote unquote, scientific explanations, when you get down to the very, very root cause, the you end up with something blank is eternally self-existent and capable of creating, all of which you cannot prove, um, no matter which world you, you come from. 
Um, so, uh, Catherine, I really like the way you phrase things in your book, because one of the things that I think is uh, your book, uh, Teaching Others to Defend Christianity, one of the real strengths of that book is it's kind of like you take us down a road and then we come to, instead of having like a thousand different options, you, you take us down the road and say, okay, there's a fork. You can either go left or you can go right. <laughs> Right. Um, and you give us options for, okay, let's look at the arguments for each of those. And so we're going to kind of break it down in, you know, Catherine Buse style. Here. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. And so the first fork that we're going to come to, so the idea is we're looking at where did everything come from? Is that there's either a natural explanation, there's, there's people who believe in naturalism or supernaturalism. There's no... In betweens, naturalism is when you believe that matter and nature are all there is. It's you know the Carl Sagan cosmos. It's all there is, ever was, and ever will be. Mm-hmm. Um, versus supernaturalism, which supernaturalism believes that we have all the nature, but there's also a supernature. And then you know the prefix super meaning above or on top. It's a Latin prefix, so it's either only nature or nature plus something else. Those are really our only two options. Um, so if we're going to go down the naturalism route, what, what do you think the naturalist would say is blank, you know, that you fill in the blank, blank is eternally self-existent, existent and capable of creating. Well, this is where they would have to plug in nature because that's the only option that they have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Matter and uh, energy are eternal. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I had a professor that actually told me this, you know, (laughs) so I'm like, okay. And you're like, yeah, okay, go ahead and prove that. So mm-hmm. um, so we have a couple different kinds of naturalism. This one would be the cosmos is eternally self-existent and thus capable of creating. Again, this is a faith statement. So uh, there's what we call the static model, the cyclic or oscillating model, and the multiverse. So the static model is kind of what they had believed was how the universe was. Basically, it's kind of like, I'm trying to think of what one of those... What's one of those dishes that's kind of like jello that has like the pieces of fruit in it that just stays there? It's like a suspension. <laughs> I don't know. I just some it. sort of gelatinous gelatinous. <laughs> it's kind of the punchline whenever the holidays come around. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the fruit cake. But it's kind of, that's kind of like the static model is like that's the universe. All the planets are just kind of where they are and they don't they don't move. Then you have the cyclic and oscillating model. So the cyclic oscillating model and the multiverse try to get around the idea that the universe is all there is, was, and ever will be by postulating that we're, there was still a beginning hmm. to the, the universe, but that also it was eternally self-existent. Um, so the oscillating model, it talks about like it expands and it contracts down to this like little singular point. And then you have, a, it's called the big bang and the big crunch, which is funny. I, I learned that today when I was doing some of the research for this. <laughs> no one talks about the big crunch very much. Um, <laughs> That's a little less pleasant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A big Nestle um, crunch would be fine, but sorry. <laughs> that sounds <laughs> sorry. awesome. I take that. Um, so this is one of the ways that they try to get around the fact that the universe had a beginning because probably like it was somewhere around 1929, I think it was Hubble that came uh, showed the redshift, you know, on mm-hmm. his, in his Hubble telescope. And Einstein had actually shown mathematically that the universe had to either be expanding or contracting, but he was like, well, that's not the case because we know that the universe is static and unmoving. (laughs) And so he introduced the cosmological constant basically because he's like, well, these numbers can't possibly be correct. So he called that his greatest blunder. But um, 
what do y'all still see as the problem with this oscillating model? Well, it still doesn't get down to the initial cause because you have yes. something expanding and contracting, um, contracting, but nowhere does it actually explain where that something comes from. And mm -hmm. even when you know when you get into all the weeds of some of these different theories, because they can sound very complicated, and you know you get into quantum physics and um, all this different to me, just almost stretching into imaginary <laughs> type <laughs> math. Um, but they still, you know, even if they want to define you know, two molecules in a vacuum, that's still not nothing. You exactly. know, even if you say there is a mass of energy, that's not nothing. And so mm -hmm. we have to continually get back to, well, where does even that mass of energy, those two molecules sitting in a vacuum, where did the vacuum come from, right? We have to, to actually get back to truly nothing because anything yeah. that you start from that existence must be explained just like our four-year-old understands that every effect everything that we see has a cause to it so even when you're trying so desperately to sidestep this concept of a discrete um finite beginning uh which you know those words are very key in this type of conversation um you know, you can't sidestep that. No matter how creative you can get, you still, um, are, you're always starting with something. Um, I actually watched a video the other day. Um, it was a, it was a pretty old conversation, but it was um, a video of Richard Dawkins speaking to this very issue, and um, the crowd actually chuckles at what he's saying because he's going to great lengths to describe what this nothingness is <laughs> and and it was it was you know the audience caught up on the the irony there that here's somebody who's saying um that nothing exists before this universe yet he's describing it as a something yeah. um, because we can't get around this concept that that there was something there at the beginning um, and if you're a naturalist, your only explanation can be nature. And mm -hmm. so you have to find a beginning of that somewhere. There's actually a slightly smaller um, group of people, and my husband pointed this out when I was putting this together. So you have just the regular naturalism, but you also have something called non-material naturalism, which seems like um, an oxymoron, oxymoron to me. Mm -hmm. um, and so John mentioned that, and I was like, could you explain that one a little bit more? And so he was talking about things like some people will call themselves, uh, some philosophers kind of more, whatever, uh, just some of the philosophers will call themselves non-material naturalists because they're talking about things like numbers and laws being real. And those aren't necessarily material. It's like you, we don't have some substance out there that's a, you know, 3.14. And there we can't, you know, point and put in a box gravity. Uh, but yet they believe those things are real. They're just not material. So that would go back to Rebecca, your 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 pod, yours in my podcast on um, how to identify nonsense with the quote from I believe it was Stephen Hawking that's saying uh, because a law like gravity exists, the universe can and will create itself out of nothing. So I think we can say that Hawking would be a non-material naturalism guy where he believes in these things that aren't material. But again. Now we've put yeah. gravity. Well, he's in he's a supernaturalist. Laws. He, he is. He, yeah, is exactly. he really is a supernaturalist, <laughs> and he's saying that he, mathematics or laws stand in some kind of causal relations with matter. That they can uh -huh. have some kind of will and cause things to happen. And can they? Mm -hmm. um, that's the next question you can have. Actually, he is a supernaturalist. Then, if he says that, he's just not able to. He chokes on the word. <laughs> <laughs> he does. And you know, one of my favorite quotes um, is actually from him because 
Um, he says the reason why we're so uncomfortable with the discrete, finite beginning, as he says it, it smacks of divine intervention. Yeah, that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by um, a scientist, Robert Jastrow. So this is when, um, I guess, they, the Big Bang, um, the, the scientific evidence was just mounting that the universe had a... Um, a beginning at a discrete time in the past and so one of the things that the scientist said um, he said for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason the story ends <laughs> like a bad dream he has scaled the mountains of ignorance he is about to conquer the highest peak you know leaving that stupid religion behind and um, that's mine <laughs> as he pulls himself over the final rock he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries um creation <laughs> <Exactly>. ex nihilo <laughs> so, yes. yes um that's uh, god and the astronomers i love that quote yes yeah. Yeah, so it's like the scientist who talks about getting the divine foot in the door. They just oh yeah yes. yeah yeah the 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 getting the foot in the door. That's Lewontin. L- that's um, Lewontin. Yes. Yeah, I was about to say I that's my molecular biology guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we cannot yeah. allow a divine foot in the door. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll go to any type of like you said, just identify nonsense, any type of theory <laughs> that we can just grasp at and hopefully sling our hat at to just not allow that divine foot in the door. Um, and they're so threatened by it because um, it's it's so it's so obvious that there has to be some divine intervention because yeah. that naturalism materialistic explanation just falls flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, here's the full wanton quote here, just because I love it. Uh, you, uh, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. <laughs> We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, Oh, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Mm-hmm. So and I would even probably... say it's a door. It's a tiny little box that they put themselves in, and there's a whole lot that they leave out. Chesterton called it a materialist box that they painted on the inside with the sun and the moon. They have their own little sun and moon and stars on their little box because the real <laughs> sun and moon and stars, okay, that's, yeah, anyway. Right. Well, and I think it, look at all the, all the creative ways that he has defined nonsense. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, that's very creative. <laughs> um so we're gonna go so we we have either god is the eternal self-existent being we have nature is the eternal self-existent being or the cosmos is the eternal self-existent being now we'll deal with um the multiverse so the multiverse is one that there there's kind of two forms of the multiverse one form of the multiverse just says that there are um duplicate universes that are next door to us that we can't really observe Um, But there exist, and so there's like almost identical to our universe, but there's just more of them. So when you take that one back, 
they're trying to get away from the idea of God producing the universe by basically saying that there's this universe generator <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that kind of spits out universes. And a lot of times it'll take a while before, you know, talking to someone before you'll finally get to that level of detail. But that's kind of basically what it comes down to. But again, we still run into the same problem, which is what? What brought, what created the universe generator. But I have to say, I kind of like the multiverse because it's made for some really interesting science fiction. Have you ever watched Fringe? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, it's really cool. I was just about my... to say Fringe. Okay. Alternate I am I am in like another universe and I could do like 20 pirouettes like I always wanted to do. And I didn't injure myself and I ended up becoming a professional ballerina. Anyway. It's kind of fun. I, I love French. You know, I a lot of times say. you can get into the concept of probability and statistics. And granted, mm-hmm. I took a lot of that through my schooling. So <laughs> I guess I know I can go to that. <laughs> but um, it, uh, to me, it's, you know, a lot of times we compare it to the the odds of developing this universe with its precision and you know that that technical term of the anthropic fine-tuning that we would have all of these physical parameters exactly the values they need to be and they could have been anything out of infinity you know so when you look at those probabilities that not just gravity is what it needs to be but gravity plus the cosmological constant which is which is a multiplier and Mm -hmm. the electromagnetic force and um, the the you know density of space and all these other um, you know the strong and weak nuclear forces all occurring at the same time the probability of that is so literally astronomical okay I know we're talking about the <laughs> the cosmos here but but astronomical that it would actually settle on that by random chance so if they could and to me I see the multiverse as if you're saying this is like you know the universe has won the lottery by coming into existence. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that even pales in comparison because it would be like somebody winning the lottery every single day of their lives for 3,000 years. You know, it's <laughs> those kinds of odds. And so I feel like the multiverse is they're just saying, well, we're just going to buy more lottery tickets. <laughs> yeah. I've actually it's heard not a guy. really increasing the, it's not really, you know, uh, increasing your probability, but you're just kind of saying, well, what if we bought 3 million lottery tickets? Yeah. Okay. You yeah. still have insurmountable odds to overcome yeah i've actually heard a guy give that that real similar analogy at one of the uh, bible and beer consortiums that um is in dallas and i'm trying to remember which one rebecca because i'm pretty sure you're there for it but the guy was saying basically it's not that we won the lottery it's more like we went back in time and figured out which which numbers they were and so it shouldn't be so surprising or if something is a one in a million chance if you try a million times well that one time you get it right so you we're in the universe that got it right um so there's a quote by a, another scientist named paul davies from a brief history of the multiverse and paul davies is not a christian he's not he's not a full atheist he's he's what we call a deist meaning it's like a really loose he believes in a god that kind of wound up the universe and let he he, he knocked the dom- first domino over. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. And then the rest of it kind of went. So he says about the multiverse, For a start, how is the existence of the other universes to be tested? To be sure, all cosmologists accept that there are some regions of the universe that lie beyond the reach of our telescopes. But somewhere on the slippery slope between that idea and the idea that there are an infinite number of universes... Credibility reaches a limit. As one, sli- <laughs> as, one slips, as one slips down that slope, more and more must be accepted on faith. 
and less and less is open to scientific verification. Extreme multiverse explanations are therefore reminiscent of theological discussions. Indeed, invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain the unusual features of the one we do see is just as ad hoc, and ad hoc means like just adding an argument to something, it's just as ad hoc as in invoking an unseen creator. The multiverse theory may be dressed up in scientific language, but in essence, it requires the same leap of faith. Well, and I would say it's worse. It's more like a God of the gaps argument. It's a yeah. science of mm -hmm. the gaps. Because I think yeah. that there are arguments for God's existence that are, that are very strong, that are totally independent of, even, of science. And mm -hmm. that you can make. They're, met, they're metaphysical arguments. But I like how he points out the fact, and this is something that I, I just have a hard time getting people to, to understand this unless we like really walk through this is how whenever you get to all these quote-unquote scientific theories, they all end up with as much faith or more than the Christian worldview does. So if you're trying to get around having to exercise faith in something, this is not the route you want to go, because now you're exercising faith in an infinite universe generator, or the fact that there is uh, un undis or like unobservable infinite new universes around you. Well, how is that better and you know more scientific and less faith requiring than say we believe in an infinite God? Because the one the one thing in my statement, the, even though a lot of people don't like to talk about it, where I said um, blank is eternally self-existent and capable of creating. Almost everything that we've described thus far with the other beliefs can be, okay, sure, we can maybe say they're eternally self-existent, but are they capable of creating? Well, and that, this is, we're only looking one at one slice of our experience, and that's just this cause and effect, right? And this mm -hmm. idea of things that didn't exist came into being, they're contingent, right? So we need to, we need to explain them, they need an explanation. But there's also things in this, 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 like morality, and um, um, other arguments that, absolutely are not even included in this now if you believe in a multiverse and everything is matter and um, um, energy and and self-existent in that sense then where do you get morality from you have to explain away morality you have to explain away a lot mm -hmm. of our daily experience then becomes nonsensical downstream of these ideas so um yeah, that's yeah. that. I, I think that no, I think that's an excellent point. That it's the totality of our existence that must be explained. Yeah, um, mm -hmm. be, and you know, morality is is to me such a compelling argument because um, it it starts to remove that. Uh, let's argue over the scientific details, and there's always going to be somebody you're talking with that knows more about math and science than you do. That's just <laughs> absolutely. You know, that's just a <laughs> the fact of life, right? Yeah. So when you start sometimes going into all this, and they'll throw out these terms and multiverse, and they, like you said, uh, I love that quote because it, it says it parades around in such scientific truth, mm -hmm. yet it's so much more faith based than even faith is. Um, yeah. A religious faith, you know, because they're believing in something that 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 is not adequate for what they're trying to explain. At least what we have faith in, it is an adequate cause. But there's so much more to our existence, not just the morality, but just the fact that that we have a soul. You yeah. know, that our spiritual element. We are more than just our physical bodies, and we know that down to our very core. The famous atheist may, to your face, deny that and publicly deny that, but in their core, they they know. Well, 
they don't live by it. It's like a, another thing they'd have to get rid of is the idea of free will. We have no free will. We're absolutely, everything is determined. Even our thoughts. How do we have an even, why, how do we even have confidence mm-hmm. that our thoughts are really correspond to reality when there's no, um, it's all random chance. There's no um, sort of order in the universe. This is all just. And why uh, would you argue for that? Like, if right. I'm going to sit here and argue for that, like, basically, I'm arguing, like, who am I trying to convince all of y'all are predetermined to think what you right. are yeah. going to think by your chemicals anyway? So this it's, is kind of. <laughs> so you, you have to explain away our almost everything in our daily experience that we take as real and common right. sense. Especially as a as a scientist, I find that to be the biggest irony as well. Like I would almost give philosophers because they can really get out there on the fringe or somebody that um, is more arts related. But as but a true scientist that then wants to say it's all random and yet you're basing science on it being a fixed situation. You know, I always find that a little bit comical. I was just going to say, I, I would also say, because uh, you say everybody knows that. And I, I think Rebecca is a little bit closer in saying that no, everybody or nobody lives like that. Because I actually know a man who was a, it was a lifelong atheist who's now become a Christian. He actually attends a Catholic church. But in having a discussion with him the other day, because I thought we were mostly on the same page with everything, I discovered that he's a monist, meaning he only <laughs> believes in one substance. So he he does believe that the soul's an illusion. I'm like, what? How can you believe? Like, <laughs> what do you think happens when we die? And he's like, well, I think it's just, you know, poof, like a candle. I'm like, what's the purpose of Christianity? And he said, well, I mean, I don't say I have everything figured out. He's on the journey. But just to say, I just wanted to point out that there are some people who re- legitimately it's not self-evident to them that they have a soul. However, he absolutely lives like he has Just a soul. Just like the so. people that say we have no free will, they live as if we have free will. <laughs> right. And that's what I mean by it. Like, they would never admit that. And they're still struggling somewhere in their intellect with it. But deep down, like, they, like you're saying, I guess that sums it up a little bit better than what I was trying to say, that they they live like there is such a thing as a soul. Yeah. Um, they, they, um, as though they they recognize that that we are more than just a material entity, even though they would not confess that openly with their mouths, or, or maybe they still you know don't believe it in their minds. But um, but that's what I mean. Like deep down, yeah, <laughs> um, there is this understanding that we we do have a, an immaterial aspect to us. Well, and then mm-hmm. the other thing is that another great example is this idea of people that say, well, you know, we there's no God, and there really is no objective good and evil. Right. And it's all cultural or it's evolution that's programmed it into it, into us. But they don't live that way. They nope. live as if when some, when, you know, Trump was elected, that was a moral evil, you know, <laughs> and the way you see them acting on Facebook, you know, <laughs> they act that way. So it's like they're denying a part of their daily experience to accept this. So actually, mm-hmm. I think they are have more faith than Christianity, because Christianity um, does not go against our daily experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, well, Christianity doesn't go against our daily experience, except for when it comes to the idea, I think, um, the problem of evil. I would say that's the one area where Christianity does seem to speak against our daily experience. To Like, I look at all this stuff and how could God be good? Now, I believe there's good answers to that. But I, I was di- I've been dialoguing with a girl just this week who, who is an atheist who's contacted Mama Bear and was asking some questions about one of my recent posts on the why did God uh, create the tree. And she was kind of saying how Christianity doesn't jive with her everyday experience. And there's to an ex- 
extent, I can actually understand that. I think but if her, you every, study Christian... See, the thing that, well, that, that frustrates me is that, though, if you get, you know, on an atheistic worldview, you know, you reject God because there's evil in the world and he doesn't um, stop it. But then on an atheistic worldview, you can't really explain the existence of good and evil. So not only do you get rid of evil, you get rid uh-huh. of good. And so you have to get rid of more. Yeah, I, I think, again, like I said, I think it has good a good answer to it, but um, it, it doesn't take sin into account, and I think that's the real weakness of it, is when people have a real real problem with the problem of evil, it doesn't take sin into account, it doesn't take eternity into account. Right. If you take those two things out of the equation, then absolutely none of it makes sense. Well, and I think, you know, and that could be a whole separate series of podcasts yeah, to really address that issue. <laughs> But I'll, I'll throw this out there quickly because I know we need to probably get back to what <laughs> what the yeah. actual topic of tonight was. But um, but what what I found interesting, and when you look at the existence of evil and suffering and pain, that um, all the other worldviews out there are trying to find a way to disconnect from that, as if that's yeah. not what life really should be about. So when you look, especially some of the Eastern religions, it's deny reality, um, cease to exist in an individuated being and detach yourself from this world. And, and the whole focus, especially, you know, the whole focus of Buddhism is to eliminate suffering. You know, so they, um, so a lot of worldviews are fully dedicated on detaching from suffering, but yet suffering is a very real part of our existence. And, mm-hmm. and when you really look at scripture, um the biblical faith says that is what this world is and we yeah. have an explanation for it obviously that's where you get sin entering into creation but it says this is normal so our um our issue with it is that we desire a utopia that god says that's not what it's going to be right now um, yeah. and so when you really stop and look at it from that perspective christianity is the only one that deals with suffering in the real way of what our world is actually like amen yeah i agree yeah. that all, so all of the other we gotta, religions... we gotta get off the topic of oh. yeah let's get back to the the topic because we could have a whole whole other podcast we could we probably will have a whole other podcast on that um but just bringing it back to the topic of who made god let's let's kind of take <laughs> See, like, where we've come from that. Whenever your child is asking who made God, take them back to the question that they're really asking is where did the universe come from? And then start asking them to think of some other options. You know, what are what are some of the things that you hear your friends saying? What are some of the things that you hear your science teachers saying? What are some things that you hear, or if they're older, your professors saying? And start trying to get them to give you another worldview and how that worldview answers it. Because as we've gone through all the um, naturalist ones with you know the static model, the cyclic oscillating model, and the multiverse, um, and the non-material naturalism where it's talking about the pre-existence of you know, gravity and other natural laws, all of those come back to the same faith statement of blank is eternally self-existent and capable of creating. Um, let's look a little bit at the supernaturalism, because remember we said your options are either naturalism or, su- or supernaturalism. Um, so in supernaturalism, we have the easy one, which is the Abrahamic faith. That's going to be Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And we, of course, say that God is eternally self-existent and capable of creating, which makes sense because if you have to have something that's eternally self-existent and capable of creating, having something that has a mind seems preferable than something that does not have a mind, seen as creation is pretty various. Uh, it's like It's not like... A repeating pattern like you see in ice you know that's something that natural natural laws can put 
something in order together like ice, but it's a repeating pattern. You don't see stuff like that in things like DNA. Um, but then secondly, we have like our Eastern and pantheistic beliefs, which are still supernaturalism because they believe in God. But one of the things that the Eastern and pantheistic beliefs do is that they kind of merge God and the universe as indistinguishable from one another. So basically, instead of saying just God is eternally um, is eternal and self-existent, it's saying that both God and nature are eternally self-existent and capable of creating. But there's a lot of problems with making those two things indistinguishable because this is where you get some of the wacky beliefs with some of the people like where if you squash a bug, you've committed a moral evil because you've now like squashed God in some way um, or cutting down trees or doing anything. But it also means that um, change is an illusion because if you have mm -hmm. God who is unchanging, you can't actually change God. And so that's kind of some of the cyclical thinking that you start getting in some of those um, Eastern and pantheistic models. So, so yeah, so that's our first tactic to take kids to find out what other options that they think and even let them stew over it for several days. You know, what's another explanation that you can come up with and whatever the explanation they come up with, walk them back to that faith statement of blank is eternally self-existent and capable of creating. They're going to have to have a faith statement. So why should we have a faith statement in God? Um, and so, Catherine, this is actually a whole section in your book, um, namely the cosmological argument. So why don't you walk us through kind of how you explain that? Like, why do we think God is a better explanation than some of these other things like uh, natural laws and gravity and the universe and the multiverse and all that other stuff? Uh, well, you know, we've kind of covered a lot of um, the same type of ground that I cover in that uh, first chapter in the book, because this is, you know, really the pivotal thing that you have to get through before you can really start assessing religion is, you know, is there really a God? And to me, the first stopping point is this cause and effect idea. Um, so especially when we're talking about doing with your children, um, I always like to use a simple illustration just to get them thinking along that path of, of that cause and effect. And um, a lot of times when I when I go and teach, I, I demonstrate by pouring a pitcher of water into a cup. And I say, you know, here's the cause. I'm pouring water out. And here's the effect. The cup is filled with glass. And it's just a simple illustration that get us back to, you know, our third grade science class of, you know, the, every effect must have um, a cause and every cause has an effect. The cause is always before the effect and the cause and the effect are always adequate to one another. Um, because I think the adequacy of it um, is something you're hitting on there about that, um, that eternal um, entity being a mind or being a divine spirit or something moral because those would be adequate explanations for what our existence is when mm -hmm. we look at the totality of our existence right when we take all that into account just a side note for that that would be basically newton's third law and so like this is this is a law of our universe we're talking about this is not something that we see happen most of the time it happens consistently enough that we call it a law and not a hypothesis, not a right, theory. Right, right. And it's called, third law. And it's called, you know, the laws of causality as well, you know, that, that tell you this is how our world works. And we can take that as a solid presumption of fact because we know this is how this is how things work. Like you said, you know, this is not just, and some of the time it does that, but we know for a fact that this is how 
um, the world around us works. So to me, the next logical outflow, like you said at the beginning, I always kind of get us to two branches, okay, either or, (laughs) where are we headed, which direction are we taking, um, is then we have to ask, well, what caused the universe? Um, And so we first have to look at that concept that that we really spent the first half of this talking about is that um, eternal nature. If the universe Mm -hmm. is eternal, then it doesn't need a cause. It's just always existed and always will exist. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to establish that it's truly not. um, That all these other theories that we've kind of touched on here, um, that obviously you could go way more in depth than what we've talked about, but the multiverse, the oscillating universe, um, and all these things are, are, they're trying to imply that the universe is eternal. But everything else that we know about science tells us that it's not. You know, yeah. we see that things are decaying and eternal things don't decay. Yeah. You know, we see. And just we, a side note for that, you said, you know, that if the universe is eternal, then it doesn't need a cause. I think we need to insert one more step in there. The reason why something, if it's eternal, it doesn't need a cause is because something that's eternal means that it never started to exist and it never ceased to exist. So something that never began to exist doesn't need a cause because nothing was caused. It always has been. So that's one of those ones you could probably sit and, you know, uh, wrap your noodle around right. for a while. I just <laughs> yeah. wanted to think on that to clarify that. No, yeah, that's, that's perfect. Yeah, because we'll co- we'll actually come back to that very point um, in just a minute. That becomes a crucial part of our kind of building this case for God's existence. Mm-hmm. So, um, so if we know, even you know, through and and I know a common thing that um, that Christians put out and that atheists try to debunk, which I find. Um, fascinating to sit back and watch is when we talk about the laws of thermodynamics mm-hmm. um, which we can put in which you know we just we addressed one of them and that things decay and um, we that is a law of nature mm-hmm. that things are decaying and internal things would not be decaying they would be in the same um, eternal pristine condition and that's not um, what our universe is and yeah. that the universe can't create its own matter and energy. So when you kind of couple all of these things together, the fact that we do see the universe expanding, um, it had to have come from a point from which to expand. And um, you factor in all of these other things that we talk about um, from science and, you know, atheists have even named it. They call it the big bang. I mean, Mm -hmm. they have admitted there is a starting point Okay, we can get into a lot of variations of their theory, but they're all coming back to there is a starting point from which everything began and which tells us it's not eternal, which yeah. goes to what, you know, um, Hillary, what you're just saying that we now have to have a cause. And yeah. so then logically, when you step into that, okay, something, you know, we, we have, we need a cause. So it either caused itself or something else caused it. There's Those no in between. two options. You know? There's <laughs> nothing it. else. There's, there's no in between on that. So when we look at the logic, could it have caused itself? Well, we can go back to those laws of causality. Could the cause and the effect be the same thing? And we see, you know, from our yeah. simple illustrations, from logic. I gave, um, and this was one of the myths that I addressed in our little Mythbusters thing with the third through fifth graders. And so one of the things that I did was I had them all write a story. And in their story... They were able to to create a new law for themselves, you know, something that that is unique in their universe. I said it could be anything from, you know, when you hiccup a bell rings or when you drop stuff, it falls up, you know, create your own law. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I made my law that whenever, um, oh, golly, what was it? Something That someone could concentrate hard enough and they could hover above the ground, basically, and so someone could push them. So in the story, it's like... Um, some kids were late for a bus and so one of them said you know I can't get my shoes on they were like well quick hover so they hovered and were able to push them to the bus stop 
So if I were to say one of those characters, could any of the characters in this story have written this story? There is no way for this story to have been written outside of someone outside of this piece of paper writing this story. Like all, all I named all my characters and, you know, Billy and Johnny and stuff like that. I'm like, could Billy have written this story? No, because Billy's in the story. Um, he can't reach outside and write his own existence. It's just, like you said, it's illogical. Mm-hmm. That's a great and, um, point to make. I, I think that's probably a good illustration that's going to stick with them for a while. Yeah, I hope so. And mm-hmm. also for mm-hmm. um, just, uh, you, you were kind of dropping a couple of $2 words there. So the second law of thermodynamics, you actually kind of mentioned the first and second. So the first right. law is that matter can never be created or destroyed. So this is talking about in natural, in natural causes. So we already know it can't be created or destroyed, but for some reason, the naturalists like to say, oh, except for when it created itself. Now, we as Christians can say except for when God created it because, yeah, it can't create itself from nothing on its own. But someone outside, just like I was able to write on the piece of paper and create that story, I could create that story from nothing, but none of the characters could. Um, And then the second law of thermodynamics, which you were talking about, decay. Uh, back when I taught uh, chemistry and biology, I always used the analogy of a teenager's bedroom. Basically, um, <laughs> just leave it for a little while. And Entropy. really, this doesn't even just go for <laughs> right. te- yeah, it doesn't even go for teenagers. I know that some parents, it's like they they make the house pristine. They you know turn around for one second and turn back around, and it's like the whole place is exploded. So it's, it doesn't take a lot of effort. It naturally tends towards disorder. My office, my home, everything, it naturally tends towards disorder. I have to put a lot of energy into putting it back into order again. And even though that's, you know, different from what we're talking about necessarily with energy, it's it's a good analogy of just showing how, you know, things tend towards disorder. So decay, like, you know, if you leave food out, is going gonna, is gonna to start breaking down. That's essentially what it's doing is breaking down. Right. Um, yeah, so, and I've, yeah. I've often used the example of, of your backyard, you know, until you apply energy into the system, it's, you know, it's not going to look, <laughs> uh, you know, like the pristine garden. <laughs> Mine yeah, doesn't so even when I put energy using in it. some of these <laughs> when you're trying to get, you know, your husband or teenage son to mow the lawn and be like, look, according right. to the second law of thermodynamics, <laughs> the, lawn, the lawn is not going to mow right. itself. <laughs> Unless your energy is applied to the backyard, yep. right? Exactly. So, and and those are all great, you know, illustrations to remind our mamas out there of how you can make these seemingly complex ideas. I mean, if you were to tell your five-year-old the second law of thermodynamics, you wouldn't understand. (laughs) But if you say your room is a wreck, you must go clean it. (laughs) That they understand, right? Uh Maybe. So, um, so it's good to get those illustrations to to put the, because it is, um, it is a fact of life that it is a law for a reason, because this is how our world works. Mm -hmm. So, um, Yep. So, right. So if we go back to, you know, to the, to the logical step of it could not have created itself. And I love that analogy that you did with the story, because when you think about, um, you know, the characters in the story could not have created the story because they would have to already exist in order to mm-hmm. write the story. So mm-hmm. how do they come to be to then make themselves come to be if they didn't exist already? So that's how you see this big circular logic that you would walk in. Yeah. You can't create yourself, one, unless you have enough power to do to create, you know, mm-hmm. and your characters in the story are powerless to yeah. create their own uh, their own story. But then they have to already exist. And if they already exist, then they don't need to create themselves. Mm-hmm. So you you see that this is an illogical proposition to say that it created itself. So if we are standing at this fork in the road of our either or, and our only two options is it created itself or it didn't, 
and we know it can't have created itself. That means something else did. Something outside of this existence had to have created us. And so I always love to draw this back in because if we define our existence as time, space, energy, and matter, and so something outside of our existence had to have created us, then it also is something that lives, that exists outside of time, space, energy, and matter, mm-hmm. right? Um, Sounds so has, familiar. <laughs> right. So it has to be outside of this nature. And I think this was probably the line that I think Rebecca opened with in this whole discussion is that it has to be something completely outside of our understanding of what is contained in nature. It's outside of that materialism yeah. box. And our laws yep. that we that, that we have, these laws of causality, these are really only, we are talking about things that are happening within nature. These are laws, these are observations um, laws are based on observations within there. We cannot uh-huh. come up with laws of something outside of nature because we have no experience that we can see their effects. Right. Yeah. But, right. um, I've heard someone jokingly say, you know, the fact that the word, the number of million exists, never put million dollars in my bank account. <laughs> it's like yeah, numbers good. don't cause anything. Yeah. It's like they describe things. I can just, uh, the word, the number five will never give me five apples. However, if there's five apples there, I can describe the five apples. Right. Now yeah. it has um, meaning because there's something there. Yeah. Right. So I, we're pretty much at the end of our time. So we'll just kind of uh, review again. Is well, uh, I want to um, I want to throw oh, one yeah. thing out before we wrap it up. Um, okay. So because you know the the whole premise of this is really get into who made God, um, and we've often said, well, you know, God is eternal. He's outside of this existence, and so um, I've often thought, well, are we sidestepping this idea simply by saying, well, we'll just declare that God's eternal. Right. Mm-hmm. So now, we, now he doesn't need a cause, like we said in, in initially. Um, yeah. But there's a great way of reasoning through this to understand why God has to be eternal or something has to be eternal. And um, and I put it to me, the picture's worth a thousand words. And I do have a great diagram of this in my book. But I love showing how if in, in the concept, I really is from R.C. Sproul. If you um, truly had at some point no universe, because we know at some point there was no universe right yeah. there it's hard for us to think about that but there was no <laughs> universe if there were no god no eternal existence anywhere and no universe then we would still have nothing yeah. because yeah. nothing could ever create something yeah. so if there's no universe which we know that's a fact and no god we would still have nothing now yeah mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. the fact that we have something now says that something must exist eternally to step into the nothingness and create Something has so, to be totally uncaused right. because uh, something that is an effect cannot give rise to another effect. So if, <laughs> if we're saying God is just an effect, he can't be. He has to be uncaused. He has to be completely. Exactly. Or like as um, Aquinas would say, he's um, pure actuality. He is. Um, he does not have to be brought into being at all. He just exists, and and it relates beautifully to God. What God told Abraham, um, or I mean, what God, um, who who does he? Uh, Moses. He told Moses to say, "Tell him that I am sent you." <laughs> but he's saying mm-hmm. existence itself. You know. Anyway, yeah. I don't know if that right. makes sense. Right. But. <laughs> no, it's a great point. And, and that's the thing that there has to be some eternal existence somewhere. So just by saying, well, 
um, God made everything and who made God? Well, God doesn't need a cause because he's eternal. We have a solid logical way of knowing that that is necessarily true. He is that necessary, eternal, uncaused cause existence that has to be there in order for something to be here now. Yep. So. So just kind of a little fun story to end on, and then I'll give a summary. Uh, This is a quote from uh, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. And it's something I remember as a kid, my dad reading and hearing him laugh and him reading it to us. And so it's kind of been this joke ever since. But this is a quote from that. Uh, It says, a well-known scientist, some say it was Bertrand Russell, once gave a public lecture on astronomy. He described how the Earth orbits around the sun and how the sun in turn orbits around the center of a vast collection of stars called our galaxy. At the end of the lecture, a little old lady at the back of the room got up and said, what you have told us is rubbish. The world is really a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist gave a superior smile before replying, what is the tortoise standing on? And she says, you're very clever, young man, very clever said the old lady, but it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> um, and that's kind of been a joke in our family. It's turtles all the way down. But it's this. it goes back to the same idea of who made God, that no matter what you come to, whether you come to the static model that the universe, the cosmos, is eternally self-existent and capable of creating, or the oscillating model that an expanding and contracting universe is eternally self-existent and capable of creating, a multiverse, there's a multiverse generator, but that's also eternally self-existent and capable of creating. You can go into anything. You can even say turtles. It's turtles all the way down. But no matter what you come to, there is always a faith component. And so when we give our children the answer that requires faith, it's okay for them to accept it on faith because no matter what view they accept, they will have to accept it on faith. And if we can get that concept through their heads that our view isn't faith and the other faith is science, it's our view is faith and the other view is also faith. And if they still think that it's still science, just kind of keep pushing them. Okay, well, tell me what made that. Tell me what made that. They will finally get back to something that's eternally self-existent and capable of creating. And the final question you ask is which one of these faiths describes... um, in encompasses your total experience which one of these faiths do you have to ignore certain things in your experience or what can you accept um i don't know how to say it you can cut this out but what faith um explains your world the best Mm -hmm. yeah has the best explanatory power yeah. Yeah, I think that's a valid question. And uh, you know, some of the some of your kids will be a little too young for that, but you know, as they start getting older, you can start you know, giving them some more of this. So Yeah, and that's that's exactly, you know, what what cause is adequate. Mm-hmm. You know, when we get back it to is. the laws of causality, mm-hmm. it must be adequate. And so yep. then, you know, the naturalism explanation, their cause is inadequate to fully explain this life that we have. Naturalism yep. turns out to be too simple. So that is, I think we're a little bit over time. Hopefully we did not just like turn a fire hose of information on all our mama bears. Hang in there. Some, some, you know, might want to listen to this two or three times to get it all because I know that we put a lot of information in there. But uh, we hope that it was helpful. And for whatever level your child is at, we hope we were able to adequately answer this question for every single different maturity level, um, all the way from the little kid up to the college student. So um Catherine you are uh would you like to pray us out tonight sure I will 
Dear Father, I just thank you so much um, for this time to get together and just reaffirm your existence, your almighty power, um, that you are the, the supreme being that, um, that created us. And we owe you all of our praise and our worship, and you are deserving of all of that. And I pray for um, all the mama bears that are out there that you'll just give them the encouragement and the strength and the boldness that they need to share um, that confidence of their faith with their children and that they can mm-hmm. begin to show the reality of who you are and the amazing thing that you've done for your creation by um, giving up of your of yourself, of your um, sacrificing your son on the cross for our sins mm-hmm. while we were still um, condemned and unclean, that you were willing mm-hmm. to die for us. And that's what this is all about. And so I just pray that you'll um, give each of those mama bears that strength and that boldness that um, this fight that we have over our children and for their faith is mm-hmm. obviously definitely eternally worth it. Yeah. And so these things we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at www.mamabearapologetics.com. Have you been stumped by your kids already? Or maybe you have a nagging question of your own that you think would make a good podcast. Send us an email to askthemamabears at gmail.com and we will do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.